It's after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, then Daniel, then Hosea. And I'm going to read from, uh, we're actually going to read the first two chapters of Hosea. Hosea 1.1 is where we're going to start. And uh, you would be great if you could turn there uh, with your, in your Bibles with me. If you don't have one, take one from the pew ahead of you. Uh, and uh, you can use that. If you don't have a Bible at all, take that home with you, please. Uh, we'd be pleased to have that happen. Hosea chapter 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. This is the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Be'eri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horse or horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. And after she weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, My people, and of your sisters, My loved ones. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she turned to... She burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry, went after her lovers. But me she forgot, declares the Lord. 
Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Echor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. And that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness, in justice, in love, and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. And that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Now, a few weeks ago, when we started looking at the book of Hosea, I told you on an episode that Brian Chappell recounted. It's worth repeating. Uh, Brian Chappell had in his church a family that he grew up with. And uh, if you, a quick glance, took a, a look at this uh, family, you would see a very happy family. They had a nice house. They had good jobs. They had sweet kids. But um, a little bit, look a little bit longer and you'll find that some serious problems. In fact, the wife in this uh, family had an emotional and mental problem. She uh, periodically would steal from her family and then gamble the money away. Uh, she would um, take money from bank accounts that she didn't have access to, supposedly, and gamble it away. She would go uh, and take things from the house, valuable things, heirlooms. She would pawn them and then use the money to go and gamble. And every time that this woman has ruined her husband financially, she's welcomed her. he has welcomed her home. In fact, there was one time that she was so discouraged and depressed about this. She's seen pastors and doctors and counselors and nothing seems to help. She has been so discouraged about this. At one point in time, she tried to take her own life and her husband brought her home from the hospital. And over the years of this, this going on, there's been a lot of family members and friends who said to her, you know, said to him, you know, um, why, why don't you just let her go? Just, just leave her. Brian Chappell asked this man that once, uh, and this is how he responded. She's a good mother most of the time, and my children need her. But more than that, they need to know the love of their God. How can they know of a father in heaven who forgives them if their own father won't forgive their own mother? It's a very good question. I don't know how much this husband has spent uh, in how much time this husband has spent in the book of Hosea, but I do know that he has absorbed its message pretty well. And he seems to grasp almost intuitively, doesn't he, the connection between his relationship with his wife and the relationship that his children have with God. There is a connection there. Actually, this is what part of part of what God intended when he made marriage. Marriage is an exclusive, lifelong covenant that is meant to represent God's exclusive, eternal covenant with his people. And this prophecy is here, Hosea is here to show us what happens when a, a, a wife, when God's covenant people, symbolized by this wife here, turn from that exclusivity. Uh, this is a book about spiritual adultery. 
uh, Ray Ortland's definition comes to mind again, spiritual adultery. He says this, spiritual adultery entails more than religious offenses. It involves more than just how you worship. Here's what he says, whenever God is not trusted fully and obeyed exactly, including the realm of politics, his people deny the adequacy of his care and protection so that they fend for themselves on their own terms. So if you don't believe that God is trustworthy, if you don't believe that his care and protection is adequate, you won't trust him, you won't obey him, and you'll fend for themselves yourself, and you will be a spiritual adulterer. Now, we have a long passage before us, these first two chapters of the book of Hosea. Remember that the last time we were here, we parked for a long time in verse 2, where God gives this command to Hosea to go and marry a promiscuous woman. And the big question is, was she promiscuous when Hosea married her, or did she become promiscuous after their wedding? When was her unfaithfulness, when did it reveal itself? I suggested to you that if Hosea and his wife, Gomer, are supposed to point to God's relationship with his people, Israel, I think it seems best to understand that Gomer was in the same condition that Israel was when God found Israel unfaithful and idolatrous. In fact, it's likely to believe that that Gomer was perhaps working as a temple prostitute in one of these uh, pagan temples that, that were all over the promised land, all over Israel. In fact, uh, isn't that the way God finds all of his children? He finds all of us unfaithful and broken. Now today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Hosea's children. Hosea and Gomer have three children, and by God's command, Hosea gives them very strange names. (laughs) Uh, And the names themselves, actually, of these children form the structure of these chapters. The the child is named, and then the, the child's name is applied to the nation of Israel in some way, and actually gets a little longer. First child is a few verses, and the second child is more, and the third child is a long passage describing how that name symbolically fits into God's plans for his people. We'll think about the names for just a minute, just a second here. Uh, First there is uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 3, verse 4 rather, says the first son is named Jezreel. Jezreel, name him Jezreel. Um, It's a valley, Jezreel is. This is a place name. Jezreel comes up in the Old Testament over and over and over again. It's a site for military battles. There's a lot of bloodshed that happened in Jezreel. We're going to talk about the specific events here in just a few minutes. But this would be like naming your child um, Gettysburg or Pearl Harbor or Normandy. That's how the people would think about this. Um, If you name your child Gettysburg someone's going to make a smart remark. It's probably going to be me, okay? And, and I, you're going to name your... I'm going to go to the hospital, I'm going to visit you, and you say, this is our son Gettysburg, and I'm like, I will say, it's going to be a battle to raise that kid, right? Okay? You would say this... I, you, some of you were thinking the same thing, right? Okay? Um, Jezreel. Ooh, bloody war. Now then there's a daughter. Uh, a daughter is born next. Her name is Lo Ruhama which translated means not loved, or your translation might say no mercy. What a strange name for a little girl. Think about this. God, Hosea names his daughter not loved. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, was born into a very dysfunctional family. Her father was an alcoholic, 
and her uh, mother was a beautiful, beautiful woman, well-known in society, but she was just an extreme narcissist. And Eleanor Roosevelt was born, and she was not nearly as attractive as her uh, mother. In fact, she was somewhat of a homely little child. And, and Eleanor Roosevelt's grandmother and her mother gave her a nickname when she was very young. They called her Granny. And the reason they called her Granny was because she looked like a little old woman. Can you imagine what that happens to you, what that would do to you if the most important people in your life gave you this awful nickname? They called her Granny because she was just so unappealing. How about this little girl, not loved? Not loved. Hmm. Who names, who names your daughter not loved? Then there's a third son, Lo-Ami, which means not my people, not mine. Probably Hosea's neighbors would have had sympathy for the little girl. Oh, look at that little girl. She's called not loved. But what would they have said about the little boy named not mine? He would have been the object of gossip. Not mine. What's Hosea saying about his marriage if he calls his third child not mine? Or what's he saying about his wife? It's, it's an ugly word. It's an ugly word. It's used to demean people. But basically, Hosea called his son bastard. That's what he named him. What's he saying about this kid? As you read the, the, the prophecy through here, you see, you see that uh, these names become launching pads for Hosea to deliver God's message. They needed to know uh, that judgment was coming like at Jezreel. They needed to know that they had worn out God's love, and they needed to know that it was they who were illegitimate children. Over and over again in the Hebrew Scriptures, God says to the people, uh, to the Israelites, you're going to be my people and I'll be your God. Look at Ephesians 6, 7. It's one of the most famous promises about this. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You are my people. You're mine. And now God's prophet gives birth to a son and names him not my people. Don't laugh. Don't gossip about Lo-Ami. Don't do that behind his back because you are the illegitimate children. It's a sobering book. It's a book with uh, pending judgment and grief and sorrow. It's like a mirror. God is holding up a mirror to the people to show them what they're really like. I learned when my children, it didn't take me long to learn this, when they were toddlers in particular, when they would uh, fall. Toddlers are clumsy people, right? They fall all the time. And when they would fall, inevitably tears would come. And inevitably, a question would arise in their minds. Am I bleeding? Am I bleeding? I realize this is not the time to get out the mirror and show them. Yeah, it, 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 you can talk them down from where they are, at whatever point of horror they are over their injury and pain. But if you show them a mirror and they see blood, it's just torture. I'm bleeding! I'm bleeding! It's a mirror. Hosea is showing to the people. Look at your condition your real condition. Now, what else is unusual about this passage? We're just kind of talking about the structure of these chapters so far. What else is unusual here is that they're punctuated by some jarring and rather unexpected transitions. Uh, Hosea moves from some severe judgment to to blessing. I think that's actually part of the key to understand these chapters. But look, for example, at at chapter 1. Verse 9 again. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. That's pretty severe. 
Verse 10, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. What? That's quite a transition, isn't it? From, you're not mine, but I am going to fulfill all the promises that I made to Abraham, and you're going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Or um, look over at, at verse uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13 says, I will punish her for the day she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore. Now, what would you expect to come after the word therefore here? If, if you were a husband and, and you were saying, my wife has forgotten me, therefore, what's going to come next? What are you going to put in that sentence? Probably not this. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I'm going to speak tenderly to her. That's not what we expect. It's not what we expect after verse 13. This is jarring interruptions. And I think they help us to see what Hosea is teaching here. In fact, what I want to do this morning is I want to surface three themes that arise out of this passage. First of all, we're going to talk about Israel's determination to rebel. Uh, Doing so, I think this is going to help us understand what the Bible means when the Bible talks about us as being sinners. What is it saying? It's deeper and it's thicker. It's deeper and thicker in your own life than you at first might realize. So we're going to talk about their determination to rebel. Second, we're going to talk about the reality of judgment. There is this judgment that is to come. We're going to talk about this a lot in the book of Hosea. And here, under this heading, we'll talk about Jezreel and what Jezreel is about. Then we're going to talk about God's rescue, a rescue of love. It's a rescue that's shaped and formed by his own love. All right, let's begin. We're going to talk about Israel and the determination to rebel. These are not chapters about mistakes. These are not chapters about accidents that Israel's had. These are not chapters... Uh, about stumbling or inadvertent action or none of the words that we use to describe our own sin or to, to minimize our own sin are used here. Israel didn't make a mistake. Um, there is in this passage actually determination. Stubborn, determined behavior. I am not going to do what God says. And actually in this, Hosea surfaces more than he shows us more than just what applies to the Israelites. It's about us too. Think about it here. First of all, I want you to notice that rebellion extends to your desires. Rebellion extends to your desires. It goes deep enough into your life that it penetrates to your desires, what you want. When the Bible calls human beings sinners, it is not merely talking about our behavior. Um. Merely what we do accidentally extends very deeply into us. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. There's all this interplay in chapter 2 between uh, Gomer as a prostitute and the nation of Israel. And he goes back and forth. But verse 7, She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. The word chase here is a hunting word a hunting word. She's in pursuit. She longs for, she looks for, she desperately wants these idols that she is chasing after. Our sin against God, a rebellion against him, extends beyond just our external choices. It goes very deeply into our desires. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in Galatians 5.17. He says, 
our battle with sin is not just about the will, it's about what we want. He says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. The problem is desire. It goes that deeply within us. Now, this touches, on a, uh, touches us in a couple of different ways. One of the ways is that it, uh, we see a, a cultural movement, a movement in our culture. It's called, by Charles Taylor, who is a Canadian philosopher, it's called the Age of Authenticity. And, and according to the Age of the Authenticity, this is the mindset of our world today, in order to be an authentic person, in order to be a free person, in order to be really the real you you are, you have to be able to be authentic with your desires. You've got to be able to do whatever you want and express yourself however you are. And that's the only way for you to be truly free and truly authentic. And do you know where the age of authenticity is manifesting itself most clearly? You know, in our sexuality. I've got to be who I feel like I am. I've got to express myself just the way that I am, feel. Well, Paul says... You are not to do whatever you want. The other, reason, the other way that this passage, this, this concept of desire touches me is that my, my problem is that so many of my desires come unbidden. I don't plan for what I want. If you're honest with yourself, um, you want what you have not planned to want and you don't want what you want to want. Right? You want what you don't want to want, and you want what you want to not want. Your desires, they don't align with what you think in your mind ought to be true of you. Desires come unbidden. In the, in the book of Galatians, following that verse that we just read, Paul talks about some of the works of this flesh, this lusting machine, and he talks about envy and rage and uh, dissension. They come unbidden. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, man, I hope I really get some envy today because I would love to feel envious today. Or I just can't wait for a great explosion of rage. These desires, they come unbidden and they contribute to how how far short we fall of God's standards. Not all sin is consciously chosen sin. It comes unbidden. It penetrates deeply. And, and if that's true, then, then true change for it to be real has to extend down to your desires as well. How do you do that? How do you change what you want? D.A. Carson points this in a helpful direction. I think he said, um, the way to really beat sin is not to whip it out of you, but to sow glory in Christ that sleaze looks dirty. I think he's on to something there. In fact, um, we're going to maybe spend some time a little bit later this morning glorying in Christ. Rebellion extends to your desires. Now, secondly here, rebellion, notice this, builds on misplaced glory. It builds on misplaced glory. Now that phrase, misplaced glory, is unfamiliar to you perhaps, but it's easy to see actually in the text. Um, Here's what I mean. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Okay, chapter 2, verse 5. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. 
she is attributing to her lovers all of these things. Now then look down at verse 8. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and the gold. Misplaced glory is attributing to your rebellion blessings that come from God. It's giving idols credit that God deserves. Uh, maybe this is, might be how it unfolded in the land of Israel. Uh, let's just imagine here, uh, the Israelites move into the promised land and they're planting the first season of crops. They're plowing and getting ready to put their crops in the ground. And, and a Canaanite walks by, a guy who lived there. Do you remember how many warnings there are in the Old Testament about the Canaanites who are going to be there and how they're going to influence you? Well, Canaanite walks by and sees the Israelite planting his crops and he says, hey, see so you're planting. Yes, I am. It's planting season. You know, what we have discovered around here, that if we want crops really to grow well, if you really want good crops, you need to put this statue in your field. A little statue of Baal. Really? Yeah, you know, um, the God you serve, he may have sustained you in the wilderness, and he might have gotten you out of Egypt, but here in this land, uh, Baal is the God you've got to serve. And if you want good crops, then, then you, you really should put a statue just like this. Uh, in your field. I'll sell you one. It's not that expensive. Hmm. Well, uh, okay. Um, and, he, and the Israelite takes the, the statue of Baal and puts it in his field. That year he gets a good harvest. Ooh. But he wants a better harvest. So the next year he decides to put the statue of Baal in the field again and he goes and makes one sacrifice at the temple of Baal which is down the street a little bit. And the harvest gets a little bit better. So the next year, he builds a statue of Baal in his field. He puts it up, and he goes and worships regularly at the temple of Baal. Good harvest. The year after that, he builds his own temple to Baal, so he doesn't have to go down the street. And here he is, worshiping this idol, attributing to the idol, to Baal, all the crops that he has received from this field. See, what they didn't realize was that all the good that they thought they were getting was only because of the patience and graciousness of God that he had not yet wiped them off the planet for their idolatry. They think God is not sufficient to provide us with what we need. He's, he's not adequate for us. Spiritual adultery is doubting the adequacy of God's care and God's provision. Now, this sort of idolatry is easy to see. If there were statues everywhere, if there were temples everywhere, it'd be easy to see that. But the type of spiritual idolatry we encounter these days is not made up of statues and temples, at least in our country. It's made up of all sorts of things, good things and bad things, that we turn to to provide us with what we think that we need. A young man goes to a brothel. A glutton goes to her dinner table. An addict goes to his dealer. You hold on to your job because it makes you feel powerful or your children because they make you feel needed or your appearance because it makes you feel wanted. You go to these things for comfort and pleasure and affirmation and, and whatever you think you're getting out of them, whatever endorphins are jetted into your system, whatever peace comes, whatever benefit there is, is not from the homage to your idol. It's just an expression of the patience of God who has not yet intervened in your life. Be careful of misplaced glory. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Don't, don't substitute 
Don't put the gifts in the place of the giver and attribute to the gifts the things that the giver gives. This chapter of the Bible may serve as a warning to you this morning. What you turn to only satisfies you by the long-suffering of God. It is illusory. Rebellion builds on misplaced glory. Now third here, rebellion may hide behind flimsy repentance. Rebellion may hide behind flimsy repentance. Look at chapter 2, verse 7 again. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 7. She'll chase after her lovers but not catch them. She'll look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. Hey, she's going home. Great. (laughs) Why is she going home? For the wool, the linen, the olive oil, the silver, the gold. But not for her husband. Not for his sake. Not for the sake of God and his beauty or his wonder or because he is worthy to be treasured. God's going to bring this people to an end of themselves. He might bring you to the end of yourself. uh, But be careful, be careful. It may be part of his gracious intervention in your life. Uh, Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and God is bringing you to the end of yourself. Don't become a Christian Let me warn you, don't become a Christian because you think that Jesus is going to make your dreams come true. Don't become a Christian because you think that if you follow him closely enough, you'll get the job, the spouse, the stability, the life you have always wanted. He's good. He is immeasurably immeasurably good to us. But Jesus himself said that he, he is the pearl of great worth. He's like a treasure that you might find buried in a field. Like you would for that pearl or for that treasure, sell everything you have to get him, him, him. Now can you see here how Hosea wants to unfold the nature of what the Bible means when it calls you a sinner? Why spiritual adultery is a cogent category? It's not just because people do bad things. It's as deep as your desires. It's not easily set aside by mere regret. It's the condition of us all. Now, uh, God moves on here, or Hosea moves on, after this theme of showing how Hosea's wife, how God's wife, how the nation is determined to rebel. The text talks about judgment. Again, it's going to come up a lot in our study of the book of Hosea. But judgment is here. I want to move through several examples briefly to show you. Let's go back to Jezreel, shall we, in verse 2. It says, uh, verse 4, actually, I'm going to punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. Now, um, Hosea is referring to an episode that happened back in 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10. There was a, a dynasty that was ruling in Israel, and it was one of Israel's most wicked dynasties. Omri, Ahab, those guys, those are familiar names to you, a very wicked generation, a, a dynasty of kings. And God raised up Jehu, and God sent Jehu to kill, to assassinate the, uh, the king in that um, Dynasty. His name was Joram. And Jehu went to Jezreel, killed Joram. Jehu killed all of uh, Joram's family, and he killed actually every prophet of Baal that he could find. This is in 2 Kings 9 and 10. And he did it in the Jezreel Valley. That's where he did this. But Jehu did not learn his lesson. The problem is 
that he did not lead the nation in repentance. He killed all the, the, uh, the prophets of Baal and all the kings. That's a good first step. God commended him for this. But he didn't learn that lesson. And in fact, he continued to lead the nation of Israel in, in idolatry and rebellion against God. So now it's gonna, God is going to finish his family line at Jezreel, which actually happened. Zechariah, his great-grandson, was killed in the valley of Jezreel. Just like God put an end, is going to put an end to that dynasty, he's going to put an end to the nation of Israel. There's a little bit of um, wordplay there. Can you hear Jezreel, Israel, how they kind of sound the same? So for the rest of the passage, sometimes God calls the nation of Israel Jezreel. That, if you see that, that's what's going on there. Now, let's keep looking here. Chapter 2, verse 3, judgment. I'm going to strip her naked. I will make her as bare on the day, as in the day she was born. I will make her like a desert. I will turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. God's going to kill the people. He's going to do it through drought. Do you remember in the wilderness when they were wandering, how often they were thirsty? God says, I am going to visit you with drought. Then in uh, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, more judgment. I'm going to take away my grain, my new wine. I'm going to take my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. I will expose her lewdness. No one's going to take her out of my hands. There is a lot of nudity in this passage. God's going to strip her bare. There is, there is a, an appropriate and good and wonderful uh, nudity in the, the, the expression of, of union between a husband and wife. There's a beautiful, uh, shameless... Uh, nakedness, that's not what God is talking about here. He's talking about the nakedness of shame. God is going to bring these people to shame and he is going to hold on to them tight. No one is going to be able to rescue the nation of Israel from God's judgment. It is coming. Verse 12, I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. The the places where they went to get grapes and figs now are going to be haunts of jackals. Can you imagine if God in judgment took all of the fertile fields of Lancaster County and filled them with coyotes and wolves and bears and foxes? That if you went out to harvest, your life was in danger from all of these wild animals? That's what God is doing here to the nation of of Israel. Um, back in chapter 1, uh, verse 3, he says, or verse 5, he's going to break Israel's bow. God is master over the military might. God is master over the sky. God is master over the wild animals. And he's going to use all of those things to discipline his people. It is over for this generation. In Hosea's day, the people who are listening to Hosea the prophet, God is going to kill them all. There's going to be no reprieve. It is over for them. Now why, though, let's ask the question here. This is the judgment that is coming. Why is God bringing these calamities on them? We can answer that question in a number of ways. We can talk about their spiritual adultery. But actually, another reason that the Bible talks about, another reason that God's going to to do this is because this is how God is going to bring the nation, the survivors, the few that survive, this is how God is going to bring them back to himself. Don't miss this. This is where we transition to the the rescue of love. These two chapters, you can can trace uh, many of these themes back to the Old Testament law. This is not just, though, for God, a legal transaction. This is not just a financial transaction. 
This is for God, not an if-then contract dispute. This is a matter of love. God loves these people. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. We read it a couple times. It says at the end, but me, she forgot. She forgot me. Aren't those the words of a broken-hearted husband? She, she forgot me. Judgment is going to fall on this generation. But this does not mean that God is done with this people completely. Why not? Because God loves them. We talk about this a lot. We say, why, why does God do all these things in the Old Testament? Because God fulfills his promises and he is faithful. He's going to fulfill his promises to Abraham and David and Moses, and that's good. God is faithful, but... God loves them. God loves these rotten people. He loves them. And he's going to appeal to them on the basis of love. Uh, Verse 14, I'm going to allure her. I'm going to speak tenderly to her. How would your marriage be different if you set it a goal to entice your spouse to fall in love with you every day again? How would that change your Relationship, not because you're afraid or not because you're trying to control them, but just for the joy of the love that you have with one another, that every day you set it a goal, I'm going to speak, I'm going to allure her. Be careful at first, she might frighten your wife. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak tenderly to her. Uh, look here at, at verse uh, 15. I'm going to give her back her vineyards. Oh, that's good. I'm going to make the Valley of Achor a door of hope. The Valley of Achor was in the book of Joshua uh, when the Israelites were first going into the Promised Land. That's where Jericho is. They were conquering Jericho and, and they were supposed to give all the goods that they conquered in Jericho to God and instead a man by the name of uh, uh, Achan, Achan kept some of them for himself and judgment fell on the nation in the Valley of Achor. God says, I'm going to take this place that is a place of judgment and loss and I'm going to turn it into a doorway of hope. God's ability to reverse. (laughs) Astounding. Verse 18 is about reversal too. And that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the fields, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Sounds like Hosea reads Genesis 1, doesn't it? God has sent the wild animals into the vineyards to take it over, and now he's going to make a covenant with the beasts of the fields to move them out. He's going to reverse the judgment that he's made. No battle at the end of verse 18. In fact, God's going to change their vocabulary. Verse 16, And that day declares the Lord, You will no longer call me, you will call me my husband, you will no longer call me my master. Now, here's something interesting. A wife in this day could call her husband my master. That would be an appropriate way for a wife to speak to her husband. I'll let that go. So, um, my master. Now, the problem in, in this language is that the word master is the word Baal. God says, you're not even going to use the word Baal. I'm going to wipe it from your vocabulary. You're not going to say my master to anybody because we're going to get rid of that, that God's name. Not just his idols, but his name. And actually, there's evidence in the Bible. I'm going to, we'll, we'll geek out on Old Testament for a little bit here. Um, there is evidence in the Bible that that actually happened. See, um, you know in the Bible that, that often they use Yahweh's name as part of people's names? So these kings... They have the name um, Hezekiah, Uzziah. That's part of Yahweh's name. They have God's name in their name. Zechariah means God remembers. So they they put Yahweh's name. Well, sometimes the Israelites uh, 
forgetting God, would put Baal's name in their names too. There seems to be evidence in the Old Testament that at certain points in time, a scribe went back through the Old Testament and took Baal out of somebody's name and put a different name, Boshet, in. Boshet in Hebrew means shame. Do you know Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth is Saul's son. It is very likely that his name was Mephibaal. And, and they took Baal out because God is cleaning their vocabulary and instead they put shame in. It's a shame to have Baal in your name. God's turning things so much around. Um, look at verse 23 again. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I have called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say you are my God. Hosea's going to take his little boy that's called not mine, and he's going to become my boy. This nation that I have said you are not mine, you are mine, you're mine. Verse 19 I will betroth you to me forever. Oh. Back in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 3, uh, 2, 2 actually, God had said, she's not my wife and I am not her husband. That's divorce language. And in verse 19, God uses betrothal language. This is complete reversal. And how is God going to bring this out about Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and in justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. This is how God secures this. This is a reminder to us. It's a reminder to us, if we have any hope, if we have any hope at all of escaping this terrible judgment that fell on these people, deserved, it's deserved by everybody who's a spiritual adulterer, it will be because of what God has done. If this is true about the full extent of your condition, how deeply your rebellion extends, how confused your glory is, how easy it is for us to gloss over it with glib religion, if we have any hope at all, it will be because of God's righteousness and God's justice and God's faithfulness and God's compassion and God's love. If we have any hope at all. Now, since uh, we have the New Testament, we can be more specific at this point, can't we? About our hope. Actually, Hosea may be, he's pointing ahead a little bit, I think. In, in chapter 1, verse 11, he's speaking about the future. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader. Huh. Who do you suppose that might be? They will appoint one leader and he will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now, if this were an in-depth prophecy conference, I might take a moment to point out that Jezreel is the valley in which there is a city named Megiddo, and there's a mountain there, Har Megiddo, which in the New Testament becomes Armageddon, which is a place where the one leader that God has appointed will return for his people. But since this isn't a class like that, I won't point that out. One leader. I think that leader is Jesus himself. Actually, Peter takes this chapter and he applies it to non-Jews, non-Israelites who have come to God through Jesus Christ. Pastor Scott read this a few minutes ago. First Peter 2.10 Once you were not a people, 
But now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Do you see this? Once you were lo ruhama, and now you are mercied. Once you were lo ami, you were not my people, but now you are my people. And how did this happen? Through the Lord Jesus. Because God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. That, that God's wrath, satisfied by Jesus on the cross, demonstrating to us the full extent of God's love. If you have any hope of rescue, if you have any hope of, of, of escaping from this God who is so just, if you have any hope at all, it will be because of what God has done in Jesus. And God didn't do it begrudgingly. God has not saved you regretfully. He will not save you on the basis of some technicality that you've exploited. It's an act of His love. It's an act of His love, which is why the invitation of the Bible comes to turn and trust in Him. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you something this morning. I say this because I love you. You are a mess. I was talking to a young lady in our church uh, several months ago about some of the things that were going on in her life, and she described herself this way. She said, I'm a hot mess. You're a hot mess. If this really is describing the human condition, you're a mess. Every single one of you, the guy sitting in front of you, that sweet woman you shook hands with at the beginning of the service, just a mess, a mess, a mess. You revel in misplaced glory. Your repentance is terrible. Your desires are out of control. You're a mess. And it's God's will not to leave you in that pitiful condition. And he has done what is necessary to make it so. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we come before you this morning and we confess to you that this passage of Scripture points squarely at us and it speaks um, uh, truly and well of our condition before you. Our repentance is sullied by our selfishness uh, our our uh, desires are corrupt. Uh, our behavior is is unfaithful. We don't trust your adequate care. We don't believe that you give us what we need. All these things we are guilty of. You you. This is a a passage that unfolds our sin in its ten thousand shades. And yet we as a congregation this morning have the privilege of gathering together and rejoicing in the fact that you fulfill your covenant and you do it out of your righteousness, your justice, your compassion, your faithfulness, your love. Teach us, Lord, this morning, not just to wallow in our brokenness, but to revel in your great love that is greater than our sin and our shame. How we thank you. You are merciful beyond our description, uh, beyond our ability to comprehend, and we give you thanks through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray these things together, saying, Amen.